the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Comments in brief. Capitalization is the product of work and thrift. Capitalization is the product of work and thrift, the accumulation of wealth and the wise use of accumulated wealth. This accumulated wealth is invested in effect and progress because it is made available for the development of natural resources and the marketing of goods and produce. The thrift, which leads to the savings or accumulation of wealth to capitalization, is a product of character. Proverbs 6, 6 6-15 Capitalization is a product in every era of the Puritan disposition, of the willingness to forego present pleasures to accumulate some wealth for future purposes. Proverbs 14, 23 Without character, there is no capitalization, but rather decapitalization, the steady depletion of wealth. As a result, capitalism is supremely a product of Christianity and, in particular, of Puritanism, which, more than any other faith, has furthered capitalization. This means that before decapitalization, either in the form of socialism or inflation can occur, there must be a breakdown of faith and character. Before the United States began its course of socialism and inflation, it had abandoned its historic Christian position. The people had come to see more advantage in wasting capital than in accumulating it, in enjoying superficial pleasures than living in terms of the lasting pleasures of the family, faith, and character. When socialism and inflation get underway, having begun in the decline of faith and character, they see as their common enemy precisely those people who still have faith and character. How are we to defend ourselves, and how can we have a return to capitalism? Capitalism can only revive if capitalization revives, and capitalization depends in its best and clearest form on that character produced by biblical Christianity. This is written by one who believes intensely in Orthodox Christianity and in our historic Christian-American liberties and heritage. It is my purpose to promote that basic capitalization of society, out of which all else flows, spiritual capital. With the spiritual capital of a God-centered and biblical faith, we can never become spiritually and materially bankrupt. Proverbs ten sixteen. Rewards and Punishments A common opinion in recent years holds that rewards and punishments represent an unsound means of dealing with children or adults. 
We are told that rewards produce an unhealthy motive in those who win and are traumatic for those who lose. It is also said that punishment is merely vengeance. On these premises, some educators have eliminated grading as well as other forms of rewards and punishments. This hatred of rewards and punishment is one form of the attack on the interrelated concepts of competition and on discipline. Whether in the spiritual realm, with respect to heaven, or in the academic world for grades, or in the business world for profits, rewards, and punishment, or penalties, motivate people. Psalm 1911, 5811, 918, and Matthew 511, etc. This motivation leads to competition, and the competition requires discipline. Isn't cooperation a superior method to competition? But as stated by Campbell, Potter, and Adam in Economics and Freedom, quote, In a free market, voluntary cooperation and competition are names for the same economic concept, unquote. Historically, the competition of the free market has only been possible where a common culture and a common faith lead individuals to cooperate with each other. Men compete for cooperation in the confidence that others respect quality, and they constantly improve their products and service to earn that cooperation. Cooperation dies if competition dies, because then, quote, pull, unquote, compulsion, and force replace the free cooperative operations of the market. Ultimately, rewards and punishments presuppose two things. First, they presuppose God, who has established certain returns in the form of rewards and penalties in the very nature of the universe as well as in moral law. Exodus 20, 5 and 6, Judges 5, 20. Thus, any attack on the idea of rewards and punishment is an attack on God's order. Second, rewards and punishments presuppose liberty as basic to man's condition. Man is free to strive, to compete, to work for rewards, and to suffer penalties. Thus, any attack on these concepts is also an attack on liberty. It is an instance that a leveling equality together with total controls is a better condition for man than liberty is or can be. St. Paul declared, quote, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, unquote. 2 Corinthians 3.17 God and liberty are inseparable, and liberty presupposes and requires free activity. It has its striving, its rewards and punishments, its heaven and hell, its passing and its failure. These are the necessary conditions of freedom. The alternative is slavery. Slavery offers a very real form of security, but then so does death and a graveyard. Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. To respect rewards and punishment, competition and discipline is to respect life itself and to value character and self-discipline. It means simply choosing life, 
Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. Deuteronomy thirty nineteen. Love thy neighbor. What does it mean? A familiar Bible verse is often used by many to justify socialism and to attack the defense of property as, quote, selfish, unquote. But does the commandment, quote, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote, call for sharing the wealth for welfare programs and for one world unity? The main biblical passages explaining this verse are Leviticus 19, 15 through 18, and 33 through 37, Matthew 19, 18 and 19, 22, 34 through 40, and Romans 13, 8 through 10. What do they tell us? First, who is thy neighbor? In Leviticus 19, 33 through 37, Moses made it clear that our neighbor means anyone and everyone we associate with, including our enemy. And Jesus emphasized this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 29-37, citing the Samaritan's mercy toward an enemy, a Jew. Second, what does the Bible mean by love? The word love today is a term concerning feeling, feeling which is stronger than the, quote, bonds, unquote, of law. The biblical word love, quote, is the fulfilling of the law, unquote, Romans thirteen ten. Moreover, love has reference to the fulfilling primarily of God's law. It relates to justice in the Bible, and it refers to God's law and God's court of law. The modern man who breaks either sexual or property laws in the name of love is thus lacking in love from the biblical perspective for love, quote, is the fulfilling of the law, unquote. Third, what laws are involved in loving your neighbor? According to Jesus, Matthew nineteen eighteen through 19 and again emphasized by Paul, Romans 13, 8 through 10, to love our neighbor means to keep the second table of the Ten Commandments in relation to him. This means, quote, Thou shalt not kill, unquote, or take the law into your own hands, but must respect your neighbor's God-given right to life. Quote, Thou shalt not commit adultery, unquote, means we must respect the sanctity of our neighbor's home and family. Quote, Thou shalt not steal, unquote, means we must respect our neighbor's or enemy's God-given right to property. Quote, Thou shalt not bear false witness, unquote, means we must respect his reputation. And, quote, Thou shalt not covet, unquote, requires an obedience to these laws in thought as well as in word and deed. To quote, love thy neighbor as thyself, unquote, is thus the basis of true civil liberty in the Western world. It requires us to respect in all men and in ourselves the rights of life, home, property, and reputation in word, thought, and deed. The biblical word love has nothing to do with erotic love, which is anti-law. Biblical love, quote, is the fulfilling of the law, unquote, in relationship to all men. It does not ask us to like all men or to take them into our families or circles or to share our wealth with them. The Bible simply says, love friend, enemy, and self 
by respecting and defending these God-given rights to life, home, property, and reputation for all. Modern, quote, humanitarians, unquote, are thus too often guilty of breaking God's law in the name of an anarchistic love. Biblical love keeps the law. Freedom under God. One of the great founders of the American system was the Reverend John Cotton, 1584-1652, through 1652, who made basic to colonial government the premise that godly law and order means limited powers and limited liberty. Neither man nor his civil governments have the moral right to unlimited power or to unlimited liberty. At all times, it must be power and liberty under law, and ultimately under God. Deuteronomy 17, 14-20, Proverbs 8, 15 and 16, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4, etc. But today we have demands for both unlimited power and unlimited liberty, which are mutually contradictory ideas. We also have the growing claim that liberty is not under law and under God, but outside the law. There are those who believe that they can only be free by denying the claims of all law and by affirming that true rights and true liberty mean a freedom from law. The biblical faith is that true law is a gift of God and the ground of man's freedom, Deuteronomy 16.20. Law is the condition of man's life. Just as man physically breathes air to live, so socially and personally his environment of life is law, which the grace of God enables him to have and to keep. Psalms 119, Proverbs 6, 23. Man can no more live without law than he can live without eating. The purpose of God's law is life, as Moses declared, quote, The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes that he might preserve us alive, unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 24. Man was created and is saved by God to live by law, for its discipline is, quote, the way of life, unquote. Proverbs 6, 23. Here we have the great division. Americans reared for generations in the biblical perspective have seen freedom as life under God's law, but many today are asserting that freedom is escape from law. The alternatives to freedom under God, to liberty under law, were declared clearly by Karl Marx. They are twofold. First, one can have anarchism, every man a law unto himself, with no law, and a total, quote, freedom, unquote, from any responsibility to any one. Second, one can substitute the state for God, and the total law of the state replaces the law of God. Freedom then disappears, and total statism or communism from man's, quote, welfare, unquote, takes its place. This is a denial of liberty as a, quote, bourgeois, unquote, ideal, and a substitution of state-planned welfare for freedom as man's truer happiness. Every attempt, therefore, to remove this republic from, quote, under God, unquote, means that either anarchism or communism will surely result, whether planned or not, by those who strike at God's place in American life. It is an inescapable alternative. To restore true liberty, we must restore true law, Isaiah 8.20. 
The Bible speaks of, quote, the perfect law of liberty, unquote. James 1.25 and 2.12, because it views God's law as the very source and ground of man's liberty. We must abandon the dangerous idea that freedom means an escape from law. This can only be true if the escape is from communism, which is not true law, but is tyranny. The word tyranny is an ancient Greek word with a simple meaning. It means secular or human rule instead of law, instead of true freedom under God. The American system is neither anarchy or tyranny, but freedom under God. Socialism and inflation both decapitalize an economy. Decapitalization means the progressive destruction of capital so that a society is progressively less productive ability. Decapitalization is the dissipation of accumulated wealth, Proverbs 14.23. Some of the potentially wealthiest agricultural countries are importers of agricultural produce, such as Venezuela and Chile. The fishing grounds off the Pacific coast of South America are some of the richest known to the world, rich enough to feed the countries of that area. Chilean fishermen cannot market fish properly and dump marvelous catches of fish into the sea because they have neither storage nor transport to take their fish to the markets. Thus, there is neither a lack of labor nor a lack of markets for the fish, but necessary capitalization to provide the facilities for bringing labor, produce, and market together is lacking. Much of the world is in the same predicament. It has the labor, the natural resources, and the hungry markets for its produce, but it lacks the necessary capital to make the flow of goods possible. Socialism tries to solve this problem, but only aggravates it because it furthers the poverty of all concerned. Socialism and inflation both accomplish the same purpose. They decapitalize an economy. Inflation succeeds when people have larceny in their hearts, and the same is true of socialism. Socialism is organized larceny, like inflation. It takes from the haves to give to the have-nots. By destroying capital, it destroys progress and pushes society into disaster. As the products of capitalization begin to wear out, new capital is lacking to replace them and the state has no capital of its own. It only impoverishes the people further, and therefore itself by trying to create capital by taxation. Abominations The Lord God uses strong language throughout Scripture to tell us how He views sin. We must recognize that there is a difference between strong language and profanity. Profanity is a sign of weakness and impotence, Profane men cover up their inadequacies by the use of profanity. They present a pseudo-manliness in place of the realities of quite strength. God's strong language reveals His nature, justice, and power. One such word is abomination, which appears repeatedly in the King James Version. It is a translation of several Hebrew words, all similar in meaning. 
Shekhet means filthy, idolatrous. Toibah means disgusting, abhorrent, idolatrous. Teab means to loathe or detest. Pigul to stink. Zayam to be enraged, to foam at the mouth, and so on. Homosexuality, Leviticus 18.22, is described as disgusting, idolatrous, toibah. And Leviticus 18.30 applies this term to the entire catalog of sexual evils and to Moloch worship. In Leviticus 11, 10, 11, 12, 13, 20, 23, 41, and 42, the term shekets, filthy, idolatrous, is applied to forbidden foods. Sacrifices offered to God in a false spirit are called an abomination, tohubah. Proverbs 15.8, Isaiah 1.13, etc. And lying lips and false weights are so designated in Proverbs 12.22 and 20.23 and elsewhere with the same word. Two basic stresses in the words used in the Greek and Hebrew and translated as abomination are that an abominable thing is, first of all, idolatrous. It is idolatrous because it is contrary to God's law. The Greek word for abomination, Acts 10, 28, 1 Peter 4, 3, is athmetos, meaning unlawful. Themis being the word for law, another Greek word, bedelkatos, appears in Titus 1, 16, to describe men who profess to know God but deny Him by their works. Such men, Paul says, Quote, profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. Unquote. It is the same word in its nominative form, which is used to describe the quote, abomination of desolation. Unquote. Matthew twenty four fifteen, the epitome of false religion. In Revelation twenty one twenty seven. All such are barred from the holy city, the new creation. Thus, idolatry involves despising God's law and pretending to have faith while being disobedient. Second, the words for abomination also indicate that there is filth, stench, and repulsiveness inseparably connected with what God abhors. Paul says, quote, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We cannot do anything to God's glory if it is not in faithfulness to God's law word. Scripture asserts the unity of things physical and spiritual so that the unity of both is apparent both in faithfulness and disobedience. That which is lawless and idolatrous is also repulsive and filthy in God's sight and it therefore should be so in our eyes also. God, who does not change, does not call something an abomination at one time and good at another. What disgusts God should disgust us. The word abomination does not describe something which is, quote, particularly offensive to the religious feeling, unquote. As one scholar has said, but something which is totally abhorrent to God. Different cultures have had different ideas on the subject. Genesis 43.32 
tells us that the Egyptians would not eat with the Hebrews, quote, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians, unquote. Herodotus said, quote, no Egyptian man or woman will kiss a Grecian on the mouth, unquote, because it was an abomination for them to do so. Differing cultures have had varying ideas on the subject, but our view must be biblically, not culturally, governed. It is what it is an abomination to God that must govern us. Thus, when we encounter the word abomination in Scripture, we should take warning. God is using strong language, and He expects us to take a strong stand in obedience to His Word. Mild Atheism In a thoughtful article Donald E. DeMary wrote in the summer, 1982, Asbury Theological Seminary Herald on, quote, mild atheism, unquote. Borrowing the term from Byron S. Lawson, he defined worry, distrust, doubt, and a weak faith as mild atheism. Perhaps a better term might be practical atheism. At any rate, the point is a good one. The term is a very fitting one for what we see all around us today. In late 1982, Pastor Everett Sullivan was very much in the news because he refused to allow the state of Nebraska to control the teaching ministry of the church of which he is pastor. He was arrested and jailed. At the same time, similar trials were underway or decisions pending in several other states. I was a witness at many of these trials. The sad fact is that many of the fellow pastors of these men on trial did not stand with them. For a variety of reasons, they chose to separate themselves and to be critical. In some instances, their fears of state reprisals were most evident. Now, let us concede at once that the state is very powerful. Moreover, the modern state is especially militant, not in dealing with crime, but in crushing any threat to its sovereignty. These are very good reasons for being afraid of the state. There is, however, a more serious consideration. However much at times we may be afraid of men, we need all the more to be afraid of God. We are plainly told by God's law word, quote, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unquote. Hebrews 10 31. If we are more afraid of men than of God, we manifest a practical atheism. The Bible tells us plainly, quote, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil, unquote. Proverbs 19.23 Again, quote, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Unquote. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. Some time ago, at a meeting of scholars attended by Otto Scott, one of the speakers was Dr. Milton Friedman, the Nobel laureate economist. Friedman described the present time as a transition era, and he saw three possibilities for the future. First, quote, we seem to be moving toward a limping welfare state. Unquote. Second. Quote, we may go all the way to totalitarianism, unquote. Third, the powers of the federal government, quote, 
will be either cut back or spread, unquote. Any prospect of cutting is somewhat dimmed at the present. Let us add a fourth possibility. Either Christians will apply the law word of God to every area of life and thought and conquer in Christ, or as salt that has lost its savor, they will be thrown out by Christ, quote, to be trodden under foot of men, unquote. Matthew 5.13 It is Christ who pronounces and who executes this word of judgment. Practical atheism pays a fearful price. This is why Christian Reconstruction is so burning a passion and concern with us. The Lord summons us to be either the salt and the light of the world. Matthew 5.14 Or be cast out by Him to be trampled underfoot by the forces of judgment. When we are ruled by the fear of men, the Lord God gives us over to that fear in a total way. Quote, And upon them that are left alive, of you I will send a faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. Unquote. And the sound of the shaken leaf shall chase them, and they shall flee, as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. Unquote. Leviticus 26. 36. When Frankie Schaefer produced the film Whatever Happened to the Human Race, the reaction of many pastors matched the description of Leviticus 26.36. They were already in captivity to the fear of man. What hope can they expect from God without repentance? There was obviously with each of these men, quote, no fear of God before his eyes, unquote. Psalms 36.1. Few of us are naturally courageous, and natural courage or boldness is not the issue here, but faith and a holy boldness. We cannot have this godly courage if we do not pray for it and cultivate it. We will be governed by fear, either the fear of God or by the fear of man. We will stand up to and deny someone, either God or man. Most of us dislike confrontations but God requires them, and life is a continual confrontation with problems, with evil, and with opportunities. All confrontations are opportunities if we meet them in Christ, who makes all things work together for good to them that love Him, to all who are thee called in Christ. Romans eight twenty eight. We have met the enemy. A man deeply concerned about all the problems of our time spoke to me not too long ago. He was ostensibly asking me some questions, but in reality, during the course of 20 minutes, he did virtually all the talking. However, it was clear to me that he was a part of the problem, himself a problem in every sphere of activity, and at the moment, a pain to his wife. All too many who bewail the world's condition are part of its evil. As a character in Pogo said many years ago, quote, We have met the enemy, and they are us. Unquote. I was reminded of this recently when one of our Chalcedon trustees, Howard Amundsen, passed on a very telling bit of data to me. It was this. The American middle class gives a lower percentage of its income to religious and charitable causes than either the lower or the upper classes. The middle class, in this analysis, was made up of all who receive an annual income of 25 to $100,000. Those below $25,000 give a higher percentage of their income. 
Many of these, as they move into a higher income bracket, begin to give a lower percentage. Their middle-class concern becomes material self-improvement. More ambitious vacations, luxury items, and so on. Our wealthier people give generously also, and they face a serious problem. They are continually besieged by groups and causes seeking their support. However, even if our wealthier people gave all their money away, it would only slightly affect the religious and charitable scene because they are not that many wealthy people with cash. Most wealth today is in buildings, factories, offices, land, and the like. Historically, the great social force for change and growth since the Reformation has been the middle class. Because of its numerical strength, in the U.S. most people are in the middle class, its Christian faith and giving have made the development of missions, education, Christian agencies and activities, charities, and more possible all over the world. Our present world decline is in large measure due to the retreat of the middle class into self-indulgence and minimal giving. When the middle class, see 85% or more of the population, becomes self-indulgent, we have no future. God has created and ordained two kinds of ministries. The first is the ministry of the Word and of grace, which is to receive our tithes and offerings. This sphere of ministry includes the church, its missions and educational work, charitable work, groups such as Chalcedon, which seek to teach the meaning of God's Word for our times, and much, much more in the way of ministries. The second God-ordained area of ministry is civil government, the ministry of justice. We have a duty to support it. We do not have many Christian leaders here, nor in the church, etc., because we do not support them. More than a few Christians who have run for civil office have told me how church people treat them. They are told, quote, God bless you, brother. We need men like you in government. I'll pray for you, unquote. At the same time, they will not contribute to their campaign expenses. Is it any wonder so few Christians are elected? The Lord calls civil office a ministry, Romans 13, 1-4. Will he not judge us if we fail financially to support his ministers? Is not our present condition as a country a sign of his judgment? If we have fed and nurtured you with Chalcedon's ministry, we should have your financial support, and the Lord God will judge you for taking without giving. If you want, need, and expect Christians to function in civil government, then you must support them financially or be judged by the Lord. We urge you to increase your support to us and to the other Christian ministries. We urge you to help finance Christian candidates and incumbents. If you do not know where to send such support, drop us a note, and we will send you data. Do not send us such funds, that is, for the support of candidates. We are only seeking to be helpful to you. The Lord God did not create us for such a time as this, to indulge ourselves, but rather to serve Him. Will you do it? Community and Strength Because man is a creature, he cannot stand alone. Neither economically nor socially can man be a hermit without serious loss of his function and development. Communion and community are essential to man's growth. It is thus all important to make sure that our community is not a harmful 
or empty one, and that our communion is not in trifles. Man's being requires communion and community with the Creator, the Triune God. As St. Augustine said, quote, Our hearts are restless till they rest in Thee, unquote. Man's strength is a result of his relationship to God. Modern man, however, has only a slight relationship to God. His, quote, Christianity, unquote, is by and large a matter of fire and life insurance, not a community of life with God. Men today relate more readily to their fellow men, and they are far more dependent on this community than on God. They are more concerned about what other people think of them than what God thinks of them. All this has consequences. We have seen in many hijackings and kidnappings the victim identify with their captors against their own family or country. They may be brutalized by their captors, in one case raped, and yet they will side with them in all too many cases. This should not surprise us. If men do not have an overruling and governing communion with God, they must have and will have such a relationship with men. In our humanistic age, men draw their standards and laws from men, and therefore their basic community and communion is with men. It is only such people who can be, quote, brainwashed, unquote, in truth, quote, brainwashing, unquote, is a myth. It simply means that men without faith in God are dependent on and vulnerable to men and will be shaped by them. If the Lord does not mold us, then men will. Communion and community with the triune God is established through Jesus Christ and His atonement. The day-by-day means of community are maintained by obedience to God's law word, His way for our life in communion. If we follow man's law as our way of life, it is because our community is with men. This is not to deny for a moment that community with our fellow men is essential but not on humanistic grounds. We have today a major communications gap among peoples, problems, between the generations, the social classes, within the family, between employers and employees, and so on. If men are not at peace with God, they cannot be at peace with one another. The loss of faith in the triune God is followed by a loss of community among men. The rise of antinomianism is a symptom of a changed centrality in the lives of men. Man's word and law have replaced God's. The, quote, virtues, unquote, of too many churchmen are what James Sorin, two centuries or more ago, called negative virtues, an example abstaining from evil when we are required also to manifest positive virtues. Moreover, Sauron spoke out against, quote, mutilated virtues, unquote, an example of selective obedience to God and His law, where we think He is worth obeying and a neglect of other commandments. True virtue he saw as, quote, connected by the bonds of obedience to the will of God, unquote. Our Lord said, quote, My meat, an example, my strength, is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work, unquote. John 4:34 If Christ's strength came from full obedience will not our strength in communion come the same way also Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby Lord willing we will be reading again next week 
Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows 
or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.